I'm Alicia. And I'm Golden Jay. And we are Murd Nerds. Hello, fellow Murd Nerds. If this is your first time listening to us, we are a weekly true crime podcast. Each week, one host tells a story of a missing person or unsolved murder within our home state of Indiana. We hope you've been enjoying the last couple episodes now that we are in the studio. Our audio has improved a million times over, and that's all thanks to our producer, editor, and owner of this studio. That's me. Jeremy Golden. Who is our special guest host for the week? I'm hosting, bitches! <laughs> Ashley is out with COVID for the third time. Oh, I hope she gets better soon. We'll just call her patient, patient zero at this patient point. Patient zero, there you go. <laughs> so, Jeremy, how's it been? How's your week been going? Uh, my week's been crazy, but uh, thanks for asking. <laughs> I've had my own COVID patient in house, so oh, you know yep. we've. Uh, but you know we got through it. It's, it's all everywhere. good. Yeah, oh, it's all you, over the place. You man. cannot escape it. I had COVID last week, and that's why we didn't have an episode. I know. <laughs> I know. But we're back. I felt and a li- not. <laughs> I feel. I felt a little lost last weekend oh. without you know without my editing and producing um, duties. Duties, yes. <laughs> the um remover. Do what? The um remover. The, um, I am the um remover. <laughs> um, so before I get into the story this week, I would like to put out a very important disclaimer. The goal for our podcast from the very start is to get movement in unsolved cases. We would love for each and every story we share to have an ending. Also, we love hearing from those of you who are listening. The comments, emails, and messages really get us excited and motivated to keep this going. But we are not law enforcement, detectives, FBI, or anyone else that can solve these cases. So please do not message us giving us tips, leads, or anything that should be told directly to law enforcement. We are not the proper place to share this information. Any information you have regarding any cases we have covered or will cover should be taken to the proper authorities. Within the episode, we always list contact information for law enforcement. And under the podcast show notes and in social media posting, we list websites and telephone numbers. If you're uncomfortable, please be assured that you can submit information anonymously. We are always open to fixing something if we incorrectly give information but we are not the correct hands for this kind of information to be shared with. Once again, please do not contact us with tips, leads, or any firsthand criminal information concerning the cases or suspects. Yes. (laughs) So now that I got that out of the way, uh, I usually don't like to look into older cases to cover because there really isn't any information. We already struggle with finding adequate information for more current cases, and it seems like any case older than probably around 50 years, if not less, is like searching through for a needle in a haystack. So I saw this case on Reddit a couple months back. It immediately grabbed my attention because it happened in our neck of the woods. Ooh. Yeah. Close to home. It is. Yes. Super close. But once I read the case, I was just enthralled with the entire story. It was a true series of unfortunate events, one right after the next. So over the course of two weeks researching this case, I 
felt like a huge connection with the victim for some reason. I really don't know why, um, but I just like fell in love with him because he just seems like such a sweet person. Just I don't know. There's just a feeling, you know? You get that lovable feeling. I understand that. That vibe off of him. Uh, I had to take a lot of breaks because the whole timeline just really got to my emotions. So be prepared. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Be prepared. I didn't bring no tissues out. You know what? And I almost told you to. (laughs) I almost told you to when you said you were going to turn the heater on in here. I was like, I should make him bring tissues. I wish I'd have brought tissues. (laughs) Seriously. Oh, no. Not on your Kansas City. Oh, you cannot snobber on my Kansas City here. (laughs) Let's go, KC. <laughs> so this is the story of Stephen Melky and the mysterious events that led up to his untimely death. My sources were a Reddit article on r slash unresolved mysteries by the Bones of Autumn, which I just like to give a huge shout out to her. She's an incredible online journalist who is a fellow Hoosier and covers a lot of Indiana cases. I absolutely love her Reddit entries and a lot of the cases I'll be covering are thanks to her Reddit posts. I also looked into articles in the South Bend Tribune from 1939, findagrave.com, census records, which the handwriting is atrocious. Uh, Yeah, yeah. You saw, I'm sure. It was so bad. Terrible. (laughs) Like somebody to just come back through and like, (laughs) what are these letters? Um, The U.S. Soldier and Draft Records and Ancestors.Family.org. Stephen, or Steve Samuel Melke, was born in Austria-Hungary on August 1st, 1895. His parents, Johann, who later goes by John, and Teresa, were also born and raised in Austria-Hungary. There's no information about Stephen's childhood, but some fun facts before I move on about him. When I was researching, I was super confused about what the heck Austria-Hungary was. Austria-Hungary, okay. Yeah, I knew Austria. Uh I knew Hungary, but not Austria-Hungary. So I then got sidetracked learning about this country, which in turn ended up being really beneficial because I was able to piece together some things about the case itself. Now, I'm not a a history buff at all, and the circumstances of what went on are all over the place. So I hope I can keep it as straight as possible to understand what was going on in the world at this time. Austria-Hungary was a combined European alliance called the the Austro-Hungarian Empire. In 1867, Austria wasn't doing so great. So in an effort to keep some kind of power within Europe, Austria and Hungary decided to merge into one state. Yes, a state, not a country. Right. (laughs) It's super confusing. (laughs) This included some other countries such as Slovakia, the Czech Republic, Croatia, parts of what is now Poland, Italy, Serbia, and several other countries. Over the span of World War I, which began in 1914 and ended in 1918, the empire had completely fallen apart. They were in a total economic crisis. There was no food due to crop failure, and the monarch was in distress, which led to the separation of Hungary and the dismantling of what was once Austria-Hungary in 1918 at the end of the World War. I give you all of this information because I think it gives us some context as to how and why Stephen ended up in the United States. Based on U.S. immigrant records of arriving passengers and crew, Stephen, at 16 years old, arrived in New York City on April 24, 1912. His name was originally Eshtevan Milkvi. So it's not even Stephen Melky. Melk. Melky. Melky. <laughs> Melky. All right. It was 
Istvan Melkvi. But it's very common for immigrants to change their names to something that sounds more American when they immigrate to the U.S., which is kind of sad because they sometimes do it to make it easier for Americans to say, or they do it so they can seem more American. And I don't know. It's just... It it makes you feel like maybe they're they're taken away from their heritage a little bit. They're just becoming more American than they were they came from. Exactly, exactly. And there's so many stereotypes and hardships that immigrants face, so it's just like separating them more. Right. This is a full assumption by me based on what I found out about Stephen and what I've read about the late 1800s into the early 1900s. I believe Stephen and his father came to the U.S. to seek refuge. World War I didn't just happen overnight. Austria-Hungary, and Europe in general, was having an impossible time around the late 1800s and 1900s. There was a huge boom of immigration to the United States from Europe because of this. Between economic hardships, lack of food, the turbulence of the political climate, Stephen, his family, along with many others, must have thought the only option was to leave their homeland before it was too late. Which, luckily for them, was two years before World War I began, with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Have you heard? I am. Um, Do you remember? I, I think history? I fell asleep that day in class. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but I, I know it now. So, funny side note to this story. The ship that Stephen took to the to get to the U.S. was called the Bremen. Oh, nice. Which is my hometown. Yes. So, I just thought that was too ironic not to include. <laughs> we love Bremen. We love Bremen. Yes. Bremen, I yeah. Uh, Where Stephen went from the time he got off the ship is unknown, from what I can find online. This is what I can piece together from the U.S. Census, U.S. soldier rosters, and U.S. draft cards. Based on the census, Stephen and his father moved in with his father's sister, her husband, and their children. To me, based on the birthplaces of the children, they had moved to the U.S. 13 to 14 years before this. On May 4, 1917, Stephen enlisted in the U.S. Army. Between then and 1918, he was stationed in Yolo County, California, and on April 27, 1918, Stephen was honorably discharged by the United States Army for being an alien enemy. Do you know what an alien enemy is? No, you. Uh, I'm I'm processing everything you you just talked about. I guess I'm trying to figure out how he got into the army. Being an immigrant, I mm-hmm. mean, is that something that was common back then at I, that time? I think the guidelines were a little loose back okay. then. But um, so basically the previous December, the U.S. declared war on Austria-Hungary. Since Stephen was an Austro-Hungarian immigrant, he could not fight alongside the U.S. because he could potentially be a spy yep. or working with Austria-Hungary. So, with nowhere else to go, Stephen chose to move back in with his family, who now lived in Mishawaka, Indiana. Stephen was one of 13 people living in the home. His aunt, uncle, their six children, his father, a cousin, and two other immigrant men all shared one home. In one bathroom. Well, they probably had an outhouse. Oh, that's right. I forget what year Yeah, it was was 1918 at that point. Um, which is super wild to me that 13 people are living in this house because I have six people in my house and I feel like we're packed in like sardines. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so Stephen started working at a local shoe ma- making factory and ended up meeting his wife, Sophie Geyer. They were married September 18th, 1920. They got their own home, which Stephen's father, John, moved in with them as well. 
So this is where things start to get a little turbulent. Okay. Okay. So with what I, all the information I'm going to tell you, it's pretty wordy. All right. So on August 14th, 1921, Stephen and Sophie welcomed their first baby, Robert. In April of 1923, they had a daughter. Her name was Mary, but sadly she died due to being premature 10 days after she was born. Okay. July 11th, 1924, they welcomed another baby. His name was James, and once again, he passed away from being premature and only lived one day. Oh, wow. June 19th, 1925, they had another son. His name was Leonard, and thankfully he was healthy. After Leonard, they had another baby, and her name was Teresa, named after Stephen's mother. She was stillborn due to anencephaly, which is a birth defect where the skull and the brain aren't fully developed. And then on October 19th, 1931, Stephen and Sophie's last baby was born, a healthy son that they named Frederick. Nice. That is a lot of tragedy to half have to kids. deal with. Yeah, yeah, half their kids. Oh, I, wow. I can't imagine the heartbreak that Stephen and Sophie felt. Infant mortality rates within the first year of life in the U.S. were at a striking 26% in the 1930s. Holy cow. Yeah. Now, infant mortality rates within the first year are about 5.8 deaths per 1,000 babies born, which is still not great at all. No, 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 definitely not. But it's going to about 0.5%. I can't help but think about how modern prenatal care and the huge advancements in medical science society has made over the last 100 years. So three years after their last child was born, Stephen, who was 39, lost his wife, Sophie, at 41 years old. Oh, man. She died from tuberculosis. Do you know what they called tuberculosis at this point in history? I should know that because I've watched a lot of shows on it, but go ahead and remind me. Consumption. Okay, Such a weird word. I have heard that, yes. But um, so in the late 1800s into the early 1900s, there was a huge epidemic of TB with only one in seven people surviving infection. Right. That's nuts. That's insane. So here's Stephen. He escaped his homeland, leaving behind everything he knew. His mother was never in U.S. records. So I believe they either had to leave her behind or she died before they were even able to leave. His home country is now destroyed and no longer exists due to the World War. Right. He was kicked out of the military for being an immigrant and considered an enemy to the U.S. He's taking care of his father, moving all over the place, lost half of his children at birth, and now his wife has died. How could this get any worse? Oh, it's about to get worse. It does. It gets much, much worse. I just had a feeling. (laughs) So, on December 22nd, 1939, at around 3 a.m., 29-year-old William Joyce was driving west down a snow-covered old U.S. 20, which is now McKinley. Okay. So McKinley is a road that kind of separates, you know. Yeah. You've, drove, you've drove all I've, up there. I've driven up there. Yeah. It kind of separates Mishawaka and South Bend. So during this time, a lot of this area wasn't developed and overrun by businesses like it is now. At the intersection of Logan and McKinley... Okay. Do you know where I'm talking about? Uh, not 100%, but keep going. At that intersection, William was completely caught off guard as a man ran out into the road, unable to stop because the- It's snow covered. It's snow covered. Yeah. Cars then were like big tanks. Yes. Just big steel tanks. 
Um, William hit the man. He jumped out of his vehicle, obviously very shaken up. He found Stephen, who had been thrown roughly 40 feet from the initial impact in a snow embankment on the side of the road near a wooded area. As he got closer, he noticed that Stephen was severely injured from the accident. William frantically got back into his car and drove into South Bend in search of the nearest phone to call the police department. Police arrived on scene at around 3.30 a.m. and found Stephen unconscious. He was in rough shape. Right. His injuries were consistent with being struck by a vehicle at high speed. Various broken bones, including a broken neck, severe trauma to his chest, torso, and legs. He was internally bleeding and hemorrhaging. But this wasn't all. Stephen's hands were bound behind his back. His legs looked as if they had been bound at one point. He was missing a shoe, and his eyes and mouth were covered in layers and layers of two-inch-wide medical tape. The police removed the tape, and inside of his mouth was shoved a, a man's handkerchief covered in red lipstick stains. As Stephen was being taken to nearby St. Joe Hospital, the police began their investigation. Sadly, before the ambulance could even arrive, Stephen died from his injuries at 44 years old. At the, on the side of the road? In the ambulance. In the ambulance. In okay. the ambulance. Okay. This story is a little different from the ones that we usually cover. We already know who and how Stephen was murdered. Unintentionally and accidentally, of course. Right. But how did Stephen end up on this highway at 3 a.m. on Friday morning? Police ended up pulling some clues from the scene and started working backwards, creating a timeline of events based on their findings. After finding tire tracks in the snow and tracking Stephen's footprints, they believe Stephen was kidnapped, bound, and trapped and dropped out of a car on the side of the road about 140 feet from where he was struck on the highway. After he was dropped out of the car, Stephen was able to free one of his legs from the bindings placed at his ankles. He tried to remove the ties that bound his arms behind his back, but he failed, which in turn, he couldn't remove the tape around his mouth and eyes, leaving him unable to yell or see. He walked around aimlessly, hoping that someone he could get someone's attention, and Stephen ended up in a wooded area. He walked down into a culvert that ran along the highway. Side note, do you know what a culvert is? Mm-hmm. I had no idea yeah. what a culvert was, so I had to look it up. I felt so stupid. That's all right. <laughs> but it's like a small drainage stream. Yeah, yeah, right on the side of the road. You'll see them. You see more of them in the country than yeah, anywhere with the big else. pipes. That yep. yeah, I just thought it was a ditch, but it's yeah. called a culvert. I had have, no idea. We have so many Indiana names for them. <laughs> is that an Indiana thing? Oh, I have no idea. I'm I bet making, it is. I'm making it up as I go. <laughs> So once he hit the culvert, there was indication that he lost his shoe in the snow and sat down. Once he stood back up, it is believed that this is when he walked into the highway and was hit by the vehicle. Although it's not labeled as being directly connected to Stephen and is merely a theory, upon investigation, authorities found a second set of unidentified footprints that walked close to Stephen's footprints the entire time from where he was dumped to the culvert. Investigators thought that it was a possibility that whomever did this to Stephen was coaxing him to keep walking and led him intentionally in the road to be hit. Or it's merely a coincidence, and there was some mix-up in the investigation, and Stephen simply heard the vehicle approaching, went to get their attention, but instead just jumped right in front of the vehicle since he couldn't see. 
Law enforcement went to Stevens' home, located only 1.2 miles from the intersection of Old US-20, now McKinley Highway, and Logan Street. And when they arrived, Stevens' three sons were still asleep. Robert, who was now 18, Leonard, who was 14, and Frederick, 8, all stated that they last saw their father at 11 p.m. before they headed to bed. According to the boys, Stephen had been home all night studying a home correspondence course, hoping that he could get a promotion as a foreman at the rubber factory that he currently worked for. They had no idea that he had left or was missing. Police searched the whole home and found no signs of a struggle, a robbery, or anything leading them to believe that there was forced entry of the home. They also noticed that the front door was closed, which caused them to believe that Stephen left on his own accord. Okay, that would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Or they just have a very courteous kidnapper. You know, I mean, <laughs> if, I'm gonna, draft. <laughs> if I'm going to kidnap somebody, I'm going to close the door behind me. <laughs> exactly. Heat is expensive. Now you know. Now you know. <laughs> so the same day as Stephen was killed, police were able to bring in several suspects, three of which were held for suspicion of kidnapping. Stephen was a regular at a bar called the Old Heidelberg, which was located about three miles from Stephen's home. The tavern maid at the Old Heidelberg was a 27-year-old divorcee named Bertie DeVoe. Stephen and Bertie were known to have a very friendly relationship while Stephen was at the bar, which, not to be a buzzkill or anything, but when you're a waitress, a bartender, or just generally work in the service industry, hospitality is quite literally your job. So when they say friendly, do they mean that she just was treating him kindly? Sometimes just being nice to someone can cause such a shock that people interpret it as flirting. Yeah, they take it the wrong way. Exactly. And whether that's on Stephen's behalf or that's, you know, the witnesses around's behalf, you don't know. Or maybe they had a little something-something. Maybe I mean, they did. Maybe they were interested in maybe. each other. And there's cause to believe Oh, that. it's about to get dirty. It's about to get dirty. <laughs> The problem with Bertie and Stephen being, quote-unquote, friendly with one another is if it was more than just general hospitality from her job, was that Bertie was engaged to be married. Dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun. She was set to be married to 28-year-old Alan Polomsky less than two weeks after the incident happened. It was seen on multiple occasions that Alan and Stephen had gotten into verbal fights and screaming matches at the bar where Bertie worked. And another man, 41-year-old George Smith, was brought in as a suspect as well. He was a co-worker of Stevens. George, George also had a liking for Bertie, and it's reported that he was also causing fights and screaming matches at the bar with Stephen. So all three suspects were brought in for questioning. Allen stated that he had dropped Bertie off at 3.30 a.m., at her home, then he proceeded to go home himself. Bertie, Alan, and George took their vehicles to the scene to see if their tires matched the tire tracks left in the snow where Stephen was dumped. Their shoe tracks were also analyzed against the shoes that they were wearing. Nothing matched. January 8, 1940, the three suspects were taken in for lie detector tests. All three passed and were released from being suspects of the kidnapping and subsequent death of Stephen Melke. As of today, the case is nearly a century old. It's gone completely cold and forgotten about by nearly everyone. 
I feel like we can all pretty much agree what happened here based on what information was given and using using what we know and the advancements in technology. The three main suspects were immediately ruled out based on poor understanding of forensics and a lie detector. Mm, you mean how we love those lie detector tests? Uh, still, like, there were no searches made to indicate if they had medical tape that matched the tape found on Stephen. Their cars weren't searched. They didn't understand how snow expands and contracts based on temperature, and that the tires and shoe prints were likely to not be the same size or shape throughout the whole day. Well, can I ask you this real quick? Let me yes. butt in here. Uh, you said they took them to show the their shoes that they were wearing. They did not go to the house and look at other shoes that they exactly. may have owned? Or Why would they just assume that they were wearing the, the same, same shoes that they, throughout yeah, that, the whole day? I think it's kind of crazy, though, that it was they got them in the day that Stephen was murdered. That he well he died, uh, that they got all three of those and booked them immediately. Right, that's so crazy to me because now it's like you know you've got to have a, a reasoning to arrest them. Well, once again, and this may even go back to my shoe comment there a minute ago. Um, we got I remember what year again was this? Nineteen thirty nine. Nineteen thirty nine. So. 1939, maybe they didn't have 17 pairs of Nikes. Or, That's and, true. You know, maybe it was just one one or two pairs of shoes that they owned. That I don't know. So you know, I obviously well, wasn't alive in 1939. <laughs> well, and with Birdie, she's like a divorcee, and she's 27. She's working as a tavern maid, like a bartender, essentially. Right. She probably didn't make a lot of money, so that's a good point you yeah. got there. I didn't even think about that. That could be something. That is definitely something. So lie detector machines were quite literally in their infancy at this time. The first polygraph lie detector test was created in 1921. Imagine how inaccurate it Hmm. was when we know that even in the modern age, 101 years later, they can be duped. DNA forensics wasn't used until 1986. Any trace of DNA couldn't have been tested, even if they found any. Not to mention, keep the integrity of the crime scene simply wasn't a thing. They all would just trample around wherever someone was found. Right. The thing is, is we can't label it as a case of shoddy police work. They truly had no idea how crucial some of this was or just didn't know about it at all. Law enforcement and investigators had no clue what they were doing and kind of still don't because forensics, crime study, etc. is always growing, changing and advancing. One thing I'm truly curious of is if that handkerchief with the lipstick stains, is still around. Oh. If so, could this case be reopened using DNA analysis? Oh. Stephen's father, John, passed away from gangrene at 73 years old in 1941. Stephen's eldest son, Robert, lived in Mishawaka his entire life. Considering he was 18, he was on his own after his father's death. He was a sergeant in the Army and fought in World War II. He died at the age of 82 in 2004. Stephen's second living son, Leonard, also was a sergeant in the U.S. Army during World War II. He joined the military in 1942 at 16 years old. I'm assuming to follow his father and big brother's footsteps. Right. Tragically, though, in 1943, at 17 years old, the ship Leonard's crew was on that was traveling from Florida to Puerto Rico disappeared with no trace. All 10 men were considered lost at sea. Wow. Yeah. The youngest of the three sons, Frederick, was only eight when his father passed away. 
considering both of his parents had died, no family was willing to take him on, and he was obviously too young to be left alone to fend for himself, Frederick was orphaned and sent to the St. Vincent Orphanage in Fort Wayne, Indiana, until he turned 15 and left. He joined the Marines and fought in the Korean War. He lived in Mishawaka until his death in 2011 at 79 years old. As for the three suspects, I believe George Smith passed away in 1958. I only saw this because I looked up his birth year, his name, and South Bend in a directory, and that was the only man who fit the criteria. But, I mean, that's a really common name, so it could be wrong. There was just no information about him. And I absolutely could not find anything about Alan or Bertie and what ended up happening with them after they were released from being suspects. Um, I found out the hard way by taking on this case that old newspapers are crazy. Newspapers prior to television, uh, the internet, were edge-to-edge articles. I found papers that probably had 50 different stories on each page. A lot of the articles were also printed the day Stephen was killed. They didn't waste any time getting it out to the public, which allows for a lot of spelling errors, context mix-ups, incomplete stories. Researching old cases is truly a pain. And in this case, (laughs) Alan's name was spelled several different ways. And I'm not exactly sure if Birdie is her legal name or if it's just a nickname. Considering she was married several times, I have no idea what this woman's real legal name was. I searched for different spellings, different years of birth, and just pulled nothing. And these two just pretty much disappeared. It really bothers me that everyone that could have known Stephen and kept his memory alive are all gone. I think now, with the advancements in technology, this case really could have been solved if it happened now. I still think even though it's been nearly a century and anyone who would have known Stephen has long passed along with him. This case should be really looked into. Stephen and his family deserve that much, even though the people who probably had a hand in his death have also died as well. More than likely. Yes. So, Jeremy, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts? I have a couple of thoughts. Okay. Let, let's start. Um, the gentleman who was driving the car that hit, that hit him. Yes. Why would he not just pick him up and take him to the hospital? Why would he actually leave the scene to go find a phone? And obviously, you know, I know that there's no cell phones or there's probably not even a pay phone close by. But wouldn't you think that if you hit somebody and there's not an available phone close that you would pick him up, put him in the backseat and take him to the hospital to get him help right away. Yeah. I mean, he actually left, went to find a phone, and then waited for um, police and the ambulance to actually come back to the spot Scene of the, of the crime. Yeah. That's a good point. And I mean, now you can't do that. You can't pick up people. You'll get sued. Well, that, yeah. <laughs> but we're still looking way, you know. Yeah. I mean, I just, well, that's and a now, good point. nowadays you can pick up the phone. You know, you pick up your cell phone, you call 911. They're there yeah. immediately. Um, obviously back then you've got to find That's a phone and there, 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 there were few and far in between, but, yeah. and like you said before, you're in a, a place that wasn't built up like it is mm-hmm. now. So there was that thought. That was my original thought when you said that. It was like, why didn't he take him to the hospital immediately? We've hit this Maybe man. he was in such shock that he just, cause he was from Michigan anyway. So he maybe was just in shock or 
considering he was bound and tied, he saw he was bound and tied that he was like, I don't even want to. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't even want to mess yeah, with I don't want to. Yeah, well, incriminate uh, himself. We as we as most American people will do that. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you ever notice bystander that, syndrome? Yeah, mm-hmm. we will just be like, oh, didn't see nothing, Not well, nothing my to see here, and moving on. Absolutely. Yeah. The the night that he was kidnapped. Mm-hmm. So he was home at 11 o'clock. Yes, he was home at 11 when his sons went to bed. Did he end up going to the bar? There's no, nothing about where he went after that. He was a common. You said he was common about going to that bar. I wondered if he had left and went to the bar. He was a patron there, which I wonder that also. So let's let's theorize that he left the house. But it was a Thursday night. Well, Thursday, Thursday. <laughs> That's that is true. That is true. If Ashley was here, she'd say all about Thursday, Thursday. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so let's say, just as a theory, sake, that he left and went down to the uh, the bar that he liked to frequent. Mm-hmm. Did he take his car? See, that was another thing I couldn't find out. I don't know if he drove. I don't know if he had a vehicle. Had a vehicle, right? I don't know. I... That way. That's the problem with these really old cases is they don't give much information. They give the basics and they'll put like big pictures and it's real dramatic. Like they give the the about Birdie being a divorcee and she's 27 year old divorcee and she's a bartender. This chick's kind of I know, right? sketchy for 1939. Uh, well, she, you know, 1939, you know, we look back at it. We don't think of. The things like we are today, you know, women, women were, yeah, yeah, women were housewives and this is what they did. They weren't promiscuous. Yes. You know, they didn't sleep around. They didn't, you know, that wasn't, wasn't seen that way. Yeah. So that being a little bit, that's probably a little bit weird. Well, and 27 is awfully young to be divorced. Well, that's true. Like, especially then you're thinking, well, I mean, technically people are getting married when they're like 15. So yeah. she could have been married for 10 years yeah. <laughs> at that point. Did she have any children? You know, those are yeah. questions, you know, that, that they're not there. And something that old. I love the newspaper, the newspaper thing. I don't think people realize today because everybody gets all of their stuff from social media, what those newspapers looked like back then. They were chock full because that's where everybody got their yeah. news. That's where everything come from. And you made a point that it come out that day. Because that's how everybody got their news that mm-hmm. day on their front porch. It's crazy. Yeah. It happened at 3 a.m. The police were out there at 3.30. And then I'm assuming, you know, 7, 6, 7 o'clock is when papers are distributed. And it's already been printed. Yeah. Amazing. And it's not like it was printed just like thrown in there. It was in the middle of a big column of other. I mean, it's like teeny tiny one inch little squares with teeny tiny writing and they're all just shoved in together i can't imagine how thick those newspapers were oh yeah they were big i'm sure uh, they had to be yeah so much information if you ever get a chance that'd be something cool for you to go do is go to the library and look at some of those old old newspapers. the microfilms yeah. yeah see how big they were that'd be awesome um i just uh do we think that alan and Bertie just bailed that they just packed it up and they got out of there. Yeah, I would have, if that was me. Yeah, if you're guilty. Left. Yeah, and <laughs> they really can't follow you. They, they can't gotten, track you. They had gotten married on January first, so the following January they were married on New Year's Day. And I'm thinking, was this all a big exit? You know what I Could mean? Could very well be. They got rid of, you know, maybe Stephen was just getting too 
close to Birdie and it made Alan uncomfortable. And then you got George in there. Maybe George is part of it. Um, another thing that I thought about, and I did a little bit of research, but I didn't really type it up in my script, was gangs and mobs. Okay. And gangs and mobs from Chicago were coming over like John Dillinger yep. was in this whole northern Indiana area. And I was thinking, that sounds like a, like a mob thing to do, to bound, bind someone like that and then entice them to follow you. They can't speak, they can't see, and just kind of lead them around for hours. And I was like, maybe this has nothing to do with Birdie and Alan. Maybe this is just... Stephen had a bad deal with someone. I mean, there's no proof of that, so this right, is just right. in my head about. Un- unfortunately, yeah, you don't have any proof of or anything really. There's yeah, nothing, nothing, nothing to go on with mm-hmm. this one. That's insane. Yeah. So, on a personal note, have you ever done a lie detector test? No, I haven't. Have you? <laughs> no. They tried to get me to do one one time, and I'll tell you about it. Some some other <laughs> long story, but um, you know, I want to know if I can actually get through one. I think that'd be fun to. On the try. I would probably, f- I'm such a nervous person that oh, I would probably yeah. f- be telling like absolute truths and, and like, is the sky blue? Yes. And I'd still fail because <laughs> I'm well, so nervous. They're supposed to take, they're supposed to take you right from the beginning and, and, you know, get your heart rate. See where rates your vitals and, yeah, are. See where from you're there. at from there. So, because I know me, I, I would be the same as your, my heart would be racing mm-hmm. and, you know, I'd be, anxiety would be crazy, insane. And I'm on beta blockers, which, like make your heart rate real low because I have like really bad tachycardia and racing heart. I wonder if that, if you could fake oh. a lie detector by taking, I'm giving out information. Oh. The FBI is going to be on me for yeah. duping them. I'm going to go edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be great. Anything else? Well, Are you thinking about anything I, else? You know, I, I was, this being my first time, you know, being your, your sidekick here, I wanted to, I've made some notes and I think that covers my notes that I made while you was, while you were uh, doing your story there. For anybody who ever watches the video of this, you're just to see me staring off in his face because I'm concentrating <laughs> so hard on what you're saying, so I'm trying not to miss anything. Well, and I just, I don't know why, but his story's just so sad. It's like he, the poor man couldn't win. Like, there's always no, this tragedy just following him around. And I don't know. His grave is um, in Mishawaka. Okay. Uh, I can't remember what road it is or what the the street is his house is still standing i saw his house nice yeah it's it's a cute little like one of those octagonal farmhouse looking like a really old style right. ones but i was like i wonder if i could go find his grave and just put some flowers out or something because i don't know i thought a lot about this case just because what a crazy story it's it's pretty wild that he had that much tragedy in his life all the way through and then to to die the way that he mm-hmm. died yeah absolutely it's just well, and it's so crazy because we know who killed him. <laughs> we know. Right, right. It wasn't a big secret how he died, but how did he get there did and get why there? did he get there? But I, I like the idea of, of the handkerchief, if it's still around, if they can take the DNA I off thought of about calling the police department and being like, listen. Listen, just do this. The case is over, or it's almost a century old. Can you just tell me if you got this handkerchief still? And let's see those <laughs> red lipstick stains because that sounds like a lover. What are the odds that they still have that? Probably Way None. thin. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they've probably switched police departments several times, you know, new buildings and stuff. And who knows? 
stuff, all the, the, um, boxes of evidence get lost or destroyed. Oh yeah. Or, or some, water yeah, something happens and, to them. They get in a fire or something like that. Yeah. Yep. I should call. Might as well. I should call them and ask them and be like, this is kind of weird and random. <laughs> this is extremely <laughs> random. The worst is they're going to tell me is no. Right. 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 Are they going to come to your house and be like, what why are you, are you calling about this? Yeah, <laughs> even though you're like 30 years old and we're not even a glimmer in anyone's eye. At, at that point, point yeah. yeah. It's it's fun to think back to those days. Uh, my grandfather was born in 1919, so yeah. it's always been a kind of a, a pivotal year for me to rem- to think about those times. And we talk about no cell phones and no internet, and you get your all your stuff from the, the paper or, yeah. you know, word of mouth at the, at the bar or the coffee house or wherever you're. Well, even Logan and McKinley now, it's super populated there right. now. And thinking, I mean, obviously, when you really think about it, everywhere was wooded at one point. But this particular area, is, you can't even imagine it because I don't think there's trees anywhere around there. Right, right. So it's just, I don't know, it's weird. You know what? If we get a thousand views on this. Mm-hmm. I'll call the police department. All right. There you go. So there's a challenge for everyone. Yeah. If we get a thousand listens on this. <laughs> Send it off to all your friends. You got to listen to this story. <laughs> to stay up to date on cases for news, case photos, or maybe even a merch giveaway Uh-oh. in our future, go ahead and follow us on our social media platforms. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. We're on everything. Feel free to follow our partners, Golden Image Podcast, on Facebook. That's Jeremy. That's me. And we're also available on YouTube and wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Links and credits are available in the show notes everywhere that this episode is posted. And I know every podcast says this, but it really does help if you rate and review on Apple Podcasts and now Spotify. Tell us how we're doing. We want to know. And before we go, I just need to give a huge thank you to Jeremy. He goes above and beyond. He's our producer, our editor. He allows us to use his equipment and his studio. And now, under your belt, is fill-in guest host. I am now an official murd nerd. He's an official murd nerd. I hope you know how appreciated you are. We love you so much. Thank you. I love working with you girls. It's it's great, and it's only going to get better. You hear that? It's going to get better. And better. It's already gotten so much better. It sounds amazing. It I sounds think. so good. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. <laughs> and also, thank you to all of our fellow murder nerds out there who are just as interested in true crime as we are. You all keep pushing us to dig up more cases and keep chugging away, even though we're just little babies in this podcast world. So we appreciate all the continued support, and we love you guys so much. Until next week, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.